0: Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to Episode 5, Rescue in the Philippines. My guest today is Dave Brooks will be telling us about his father's family and their experiences as missionaries in the Philippines during its occupation by the Japanese in the Second World War. Welcome to the show, Dave.
1: Thank you, James. It's great to be with you and share a little bit about my family's history.
0: I'm really glad to have you on the show because this is such an incredible story. So I won't waste any more time. I'll just start right in with some questions if you don't mind. Sure. So when and why did your dad's family decide to leave the United States and move to the Philippines?
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, this is my family, but I have to say, my grandparents, took my grandfather, lived an incredible life. He was born in England uh, just around the turn of the 20th century. Now, so lived there for his first 14 years, and his dad died when he was seven. And then his family moved to Vancouver, Canada, um, at, when he was 14 years old, and at 16 he volunteered to go into and serve in World War One. He had to actually falsify his records to say he was 18 to be actually serving the war. But he traveled across Canada, went back to Europe, served in France for two years uh, with the Allied forces. In fact, it was subject to some poisonous gas, which impacted him later as he spent a, a year in the hospital with a lot of respiratory infections. But then he got back. Canada around uh, the age of 20, he was really feeling like God had a purpose for his life. It saved him for something, uh, had something bigger for him, and so he started thinking about becoming a missionary. His family had had contact with missionaries through the years. He'd already been interested in Africa and had some association with Portugal, and so he decided to go to a missionary school in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, There he met my grandmother, Anna. And so Sierra Leanna made the connection, and then together they decided that uh, God was calling them to the Philippines through a number of contacts and associations. And so they decided to get married. He was 23 at the September 22nd, uh, 1922, and then a week later they headed out to uh, Canada, board a ship, and they were in the Philippines on December 20th, 1922, starting their, their missionary life together with the desire to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of the Philippines.
0: Wow, they didn't waste any time between getting married and heading off, did they? <laughs> no. no, it <laughs>
1: happened. It happened very quickly. I mean, obviously they were very serious uh, and wanted to do things at the age of twenty-three, making these decisions to uproot themselves and to start a whole new life in a different country, different environment. And they were both committed and willing to do that.
0: Wow, what I wonder what her parents thought.
1: You know, it was pretty tough for a parent. She came from a family of nine kids. She was the middle child of the nine. Uh, it, it, they do talk about the fact that it was very hard. She was from Buffalo, New York. Uh, he, he was from Canada. And so they had met, as I said, in, in New York. And they stopped there on their way out. That's where they got married and then kind of informed the family they were heading out to the Philippines. So it was very difficult for her family.
0: I can imagine. So when they arrived in the Philippines, I mean, what was it
1: like then? So then, you know, they went in, initially into the, the walled city. They, the Philippines had been occupied by the Spanish up until the late 1800s, and then the U.S. took over. And so it was a U.S. occupied territory, and there was a lot of business and education being conducted in English. So they did initially not have a significant communication gap right there in the center of Manila. But they felt they wanted to learn more, and so they went to a province for a couple of years to learn the language, which the predominant one in that area was Tagalog learned that. And that's where my dad, uh, Leonard, who was born in 1924, and my uncle Ken in 1925, and then my aunt Rose in 1931, were all born. And then the family kind of grew and they either came back for a furlough in the early 30s, and again later in the 30s. And it was a little tough, you know, because that was just after the depression. And they relied on funds from the U.S. They had been sent out by churches in Canada and the U.S. And they would periodically get funds, which kind of help them as they were ministering and starting churches in the Manila area. But it was hard. They talked about the, the difficulties where the funds were lower and didn't come in as often. And, but they always talked about the ha- fact that people came through, God came through, in uh, incredible ways to provide through a number of people, friends. and They ended up going to a smaller town just outside of Manila, Manila called San Juan, and that's where they spent most of their life, and they started church, and things grew from there. And then as it, things started to move towards the late 30s, they, there was a buildup of the military really across Asia, particularly in the Philippines, and there was a lot of servicemen. They spent a lot of time supporting servicemen, U.S. servicemen who were away and just liked to go to uh, home. And so on their weekends, they would get these servicemen who would come in on the Friday night and stay through Sunday night. and They spent a lot of time just at church services and meetings, but also just a lot of fun meeting and providing just a home for these uh, servicemen before uh, World War II started.
0: So it was like a little touch of home for the soldiers too.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it's interesting when you you hear them talk about it, that it was, uh, not only did they say, Hey, this is a need, it was giving them an opportunity to to support some of these men, primarily men who are away from home, but you could see the buildup in the, pacific in uh, preparation for uh, world war ii Mm. so
0: how did their lives change there after pearl harbor was attacked in december of 1941
1: well, obviously, uh, drastically. I mean, they talk about the fact that my grandfather even mentioned that he, he, he kind of knew this was coming. I mean, it was because they had this association with the servicemen. They had a little bit more of an awareness of what was happening in the military. And in fact, on the, uh, the weekend of December 6th and 7th, 1941, they had this serviceman who used to drive a lot of the others had a car. And he said, listen, I'm just going to leave my car here at your home. He said, I don't know when I'm going to be able to get back and we'll just take public transportation back to the base. So they knew something was coming. And uh, in December 7th, as we know, Pearl Harbor uh, was bombed. Uh, and that was a Sunday. Um, that was actually Monday, Manila time. So Monday morning when they woke up on December 8th, they knew and heard Pearl Harbor had been bombed. And it wasn't long after that. They started to see the plane start to come over it. And most of December 8th, they had planes, the Japanese planes coming over and bombing the airfields and eventually some of the ships in uh, Manila Bay. And then soon after came in and uh, occupied the Philippines. So things changed drastically. And at that point, any of the military people who were there, U.S. servicemen were pushed off to the Bataan Peninsula, which kind of around Manila Bay, and then eventually Corregidor Island, which is at the end of that, which is where MacArthur left by submarine to go to Australia and made his famous statement, I shall return. I remember hearing that. so they, excuse me?
0: I remember reading about that, that he made that famous speech.
1: Oh yeah, so and in fact, that uh, was held onto by the Philippine people as well as any of the Americans, British, or Canadian people uh, in Manila. My dad used to talk about how they would get packages coming to them from the market and on paper and it would have stamp and it, I shall return. He said, you, you know, on the rare occasions where they'd get a candy bar, you could open it up and the wrapper would have, I shall return in it during that period, during the war. And so the Filipino people primarily were very sympathetic, the Americans and very hopeful. I mean, they're there were a few people who supported the Japanese, but most of the Philippine people were very supportive of the Americans. And so what happened is they were bombed and then they were going to bring all of the alien people, particularly those from enemy countries into internment camps. And so this was December 8th. Uh, they had some discussion. Finally, on January 15th, they were pulled into the university ground Santa Tomas. They thought to be interned, but what happened was they had a unique situation where their particular property somehow had worked out during the 1930s when there was some difficulty with my grandfather being able to pay the mortgage. He had gone to the company and they actually sold the mortgage to a Philippine bank. And so because it was in the Philippine Bank's name, the Japanese didn't take it. If it had been in my grandfather and grandmother's name, they would have taken the property and not let them go back to their home. But because that property wasn't in their name, they let them go back there and actually be under house arrest for a period of two years. So that's where they spent uh, from the bombing in 1941 all the way through 42, 43, and then until the middle of 1944. They were under house arrest. They were given this red armband, and they had to wear it if they went out for groceries or to medical visits or to the church. But basically, they had to stay at home. And you know, as we talked about the financial difficulties that occurred somewhat in the 30s, they actually got worse, right? So now they had no money coming. But they said they were really helped just by neighbors and friends and church members who would drop off vegetables and eggs, occasionally a chicken, and just kept them going. And during that period, my dad and his brother used to make peanut butter. So they would get peanuts coming in, they would grind it up. And then he, my dad had a delivery route with his bike where he would actually go and sell the peanut butter to a few steady customers. And that gave them a few extra quesos to be able to keep things going during that period.
0: You know, but I did want to back up a little bit. So when the Japanese invaded physical presence there, you mentioned about the servicemen, so the, a lot of the servicemen that maybe your family was entertaining at their house or bringing to church or what have you, were, were some or all of those service people captured or did they evacuate?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of them, some of them were captured, some of them were able to escape. You know, what you had, in fact, they Talk about a man named Jesse Miller, who had come to their home repeatedly. He had been on an Air Force base a little bit to the north of Manila. And he was one of those who got marched onto the um, Bataan Peninsula. And you talk about the Bataan Death March. Mm. And he was part of that particular group, thankfully survived. But you had a lot of those servicemen who were captured, were um, were killed uh, over the course of that, the next few months.
0: Now, under house arrest, I understand that your dad was involved in some smuggling of some messages. Could you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so, you know, obviously during this period, that, you know, there wasn't a lot of things going on. They were just trying to make do and survive from day to day, but obviously very interested in what was happening in the world around them. And so anytime they could get news, they would want that. And so my dad had a friend um, who had this shortwave radio uh, in his attic. And he used to listen to Voice of America. And when my dad did his peanut butter runs in terms of dropping off or selling the peanut butter, what he would do is he'd go to this friend's house first. And the friend would have written out a little message on a piece of paper talking about what was happening in the war, what might be happening in the either the European or the Pacific theaters. And so he would take that, he would memorize it, but then he'd roll up that piece of paper, and take off the handlebar grips of his bike, put it in there, and then ride around. If he ever got caught by the Japanese doing that, then he wouldn't have any message on On him if he was searched, and as he delivered the peanut butter, he would tell people what was going on in the war to give them a, a little bit of an update. In fact, one of the things he would actually ride by the internment camp that was in the Manila area. And he would go there and he would ask to see one of his friends, which they allowed people to do. They had this, by the gate, they had this place where you could visit with people who were in the camp. And so he would sit there and there would be a Japanese guard at each end of this long 15-foot table. And he said, you know, they never spoke, but he felt that they did understand English. And so what he would do is he would have taken a, a fountain pen originally and he took this message that was in his handlebar grip, put it into the place where the ink cartridge was in the fountain pen. And while he was talking to this person on the other side, he would say, listen, could you take a message to Bill? And so he would take this pen, he would start writing a message um, to um, Bill, and uh, soon the pen would run out of ink because it had the message in it, not the ink cartridge. And he'd put that pen down, and the person on the inside would give him their pen. He would continue writing the message. He would take that pen and put it in his pocket. The person on the inside of the camp who was sitting across the table would then take his message as well as the pen that had the information about what was going on in the war and deliver that in. Now, that didn't happen as often because it was to make those trips and to the camp but he it was a way of getting the message there now after a period of time about halfway through the japanese found out that there was somebody who had a shortwave radio they were very concerned about anybody having any types of, of radios and so they found them and one day when my dad was on his peanut butter run somebody came and said don't go and he got around to the end of the street and he saw there was a japanese jeep in front of the house where the two brothers who had the radio were. And so he just went back home and he never went back. Didn't know what happened. After war, he met one of the brothers when he went back in the late 50s. And this brother told him what had happened, that they recognized that there were four people associated with this particular operation. The two brothers... Um, who had the radio. There were Chinese businessmen who used to deliver the information to his peers. And then my dad, who used to deliver it to the people on his peanut butter run. And so they found the other three, but they never found my dad. He said they went around for two weeks looking, asking where he was. And these guys just said, well, we, don't, we don't know where he lives. Nothing. He never told us. And so they, eventually they gave up. This brother was the only one that survived. The other two men were killed shortly after they captured him. But this man, when they took him to the concentration camp, was sick, went to the infirmary and fortunately was able to survive through that.
0: What a blessing that they didn't give him up.
1: Oh, exactly. No, you realize there's these, all these instances where something could have happened slightly different and it would have tremendously impacted uh, my dad's life.
0: Yeah, you may not be on this interview
1: right now. Yeah, that's exactly well, it. Very likely, now, right? That, that, no, that, no. when I think about those uh, situations where, particularly this one, where my dad came close to, to being found out. And then, you know, even just before they were rescued, you realize how close they came to not surviving and how... Grateful I am that God served a lot. Well wow.
0: you know, it sounds like, uh, I mean, he, your dad was involved in something very, it was very courageous what he was doing. But the whole house arrest period, it didn't sound, it sounds like if you didn't do anything wrong, you, you kind of could go about life somewhat normally. Did that change as time went on?
1: It, it did. You know, as things started to get worse, then the Japanese became more inquisitive. Like my grandfather talks about how nothing really happened in the first um, year or so, but then they started to get called in to find out what was going on. How are they surviving? Um, because even though they let them stay at their house, you know, they recognized that somebody had to be helping them out. So they wanted my grandfather to give up the names of those people who were helping him. And he just talked about how things are left at their door. They don't really know. But the Japanese were trying to make things more difficult for them and then hopefully find out other people who were aiding or um, assisting the enemy, if you will. And then it got to the point where they, as the war turned and as the Americans started to come back and were getting close to coming. To the philippines and then in 1944 got put in in internment camp they wouldn't let anybody else stay in there they said they talked about how they were doing this to help protect them from anybody but they took everybody and put them in internship camp. And the place in the, in the Philippines, this University of Santo Tomas was already filled, so they had to go to this place south of Manila called Los Baños that ended up having 2,000 plus internees.
0: First of all, let me ask at Los Baños, were they uh, strictly civilians or were there any military people kept there as well?
1: Yeah, it was a combination. There, there was uh, missionaries, Protestant missionaries, Roman Catholic ministers missionaries. There were businessmen who were in the Philippines. You know, there were some other aliens. It was basically people who weren't Filipino who happened to be there, who were part of countries who were enemies of Japan. It'd be some combination of Canadians. U.S., British, Australians of various types. I think the military, there may have been some people who had some military um, attachment previously or were government officials, but those who were active military had put in uh, different camps or previously executed.
0: My understanding was is the Japanese at that time did not treat military prisoners very well at all, opposed to maybe a civilian prisoner at that time anyway.
1: Yeah, I think they, you're right. There was a very big difference. I mean, they, they were treated better than any and some of these stories you hear about the military treatment. Very, very bad. So did your
0: father or grandparents share with you at all about what life was like in that camp at Los Baños?
1: Yeah. My, my dad said when he started out, I mean, at that point, my dad was 19, 20 years old That in that range. He said, you know, it wasn't bad. He, you know, he was a late teenager. He got assigned to kitchen duty, which he said was great because whatever food there was, he could get a little bit more and he said... That, you know, they initially, they allowed there, there was kind of like a common library being a university grounds and they could read. And then because my dad's high school has been interrupted due to the house arrest for two years, he actually was able to resume some of the studies there where some of the priests there who had teaching experience experience particularly he talks about some of his math courses he was able to catch up and work through the geometries and algebras through these priests and so he would spend his day studying and then night there it really wasn't that difficult initially but he said in months things started to change. As the war worsened for the Japanese, you could kind of know, even though they weren't getting significant reports in the internment camp, you know it was turning against the Japanese because their food went from three meals a day down to two meals, then finally to one meal. That was basically some combination of a little bit of rice, few vegetables thrown in. Everything started to deteriorate. I mean, he talks about the fact that, you know, you found anything you could to eat. If there was was a blade of grass, he took it over the infirmary asked if it was not poisonous and you ate it. They have a great story about a banana tree that was right outside their particular area. They Bananas only come once a year. So when the bananas started to ripen, they pulled them off the tree and let them finish ripening underneath their bed. And they would eat those and then they would fry up the skins and eat those. And then they'd chop down the leaves them up and ate them, the uh, the stalk or the trunk, and then eventually dug up the roots of that tree, boiled those, and ate those as well. So you were looking for anything to provide, just to be able to, something to chew on, some nutrition, et cetera. But it still didn't make a difference. My dad, who uh, was 6'1", he was probably 6'1 at that point too. He went from 180 pounds down to 110 during the internment period. My grandfather was down to 105, my grandmother 85, So they... Basically said, you know, when things started to get worse, while they weren't mistreated, they just weren't given any food, and so that became just a major topic of conversation and the major concern. Mm,
0: absolutely. So I understand, I think it was the 23rd of February of 1945, that there was a rescue that took place at Los Baños. Do you, can you tell us any, anything that you heard about their recollections of that day?
1: Yeah, I mean, it really is a significant triumph of in U.S. military history, which I've come to find out afterwards. There was a, on the History Channel, they had a documentary, Rescue at Dawn. There have been a number of books written about it from the military perspective, as well as from the internees. But what uh, General MacArthur had seen is when they had to start to come into these places where the Japanese had been, and many times they would just slaughter everybody that uh, had been in these concentration camps. So What he recognized is that before the enemy lines got to the camp, what they needed to do is to try to rescue these people so they wouldn't all be killed before they could be rescued. So they had done this at one other camp in the Philippines, and MacArthur had his teams working on this. And it was a combination of Filipino guerrillas and U.S. paratroopers uh, working together to be able to pull this off. And they had agreed that they would do it uh, on this particular date. And as it turned out, they had gotten some intelligence, there people who had um, escaped from the camp camp who had been able to connect with Filipino guerrillas to say, listen, things are getting worse. And what they found out after the fact, uh, which they didn't know beforehand, but on this day, they had talked about the fact that they would be executing everybody when they had gotten their last meal on February 22nd. Again, their meal on February 22nd, they said, this is it. And they didn't know if that just meant they had run out of food, and so we weren't going to get any more food. But basically, the plan was to execute all of the prisoners the following morning. But the plan had been devised that at seven o'clock in the morning. When the Japanese guards normally did their calisthenics, the American paratroopers would come over. And when the American paratroopers started to jump out of the planes, then the Filipino guerrillas would come in from outside the camp. They would kill the guards. And then the paratroopers would come in and take care of whoever was left. And then they would start to help all of the internees make the three-mile trek down to this big lake. There's a big lake in the middle of the Philippines called Laguna Dubai. And the southern end was under Japanese lines. Lines at about three miles from this camp, but the northern end was in the U.S. and the Filipino on uh, control. So, what they needed to do is to bring these amphibious vehicles across the lake, pick up the uh, internees at the southern end, and then bring them back to where they would be behind the lines and safe. And so, the plan was to start that. Paratroopers jumped out at seven o'clock and the, as I understand the story and from what i've read and heard this was identified as a suicide mission these paratroopers were told that they may not survive but they all volunteered for this role uh, and they had hoped that they'd be able to get 75 percent of the internees out you know they because this was still behind enemy lines they weren't sure they could get everybody but they came in my dad talks about how you know you can see these paratroopers coming out of the sky and I was, obviously everybody was excited. They were in fact pairing their morning breakfast. They said they talked about how they had they knew they were down to their last amount of food. So they threw everything in the bucket to get cooked up. They ate it. And then by that point, the Japanese guards had been killed and the American uh, troops started escort them down to the lake because they were a little bit younger than some of the others. They didn't ride on the vehicles. So when they got to the lake, the, anybody who had been on the amphibious vehicles went over. And the plan was originally that those vehicles would take as many as they could, which they felt was probably a little over half, but then the rest may have to walk um, and, they would be guarded by the paratroopers, but thankfully the amphibious vehicles went quickly enough that they actually could come back. So my dad talks about how he, and the rest of the family waited on the the shore for those vehicles to come back. And it took, you know, a number of hours. And by that point, an awareness of something was happening. So the Japanese troops who were in the area started to move in. And he said, you know, we were sitting there on the beach and he said the shell fire started to come. And You could, you know, one was over to the right, to the left, and it was hitting the water. But he said, thankfully, none of them hit them during this period. They all were able to get on the vehicles, get across the lake. And at the end of this, you know, all 2,176, I think it was, of uh, the internees were rescued nobody was lost in that process. All the American paratroopers survived without injury, and one of the Filipino guerrillas was killed in this attack. So it turned out to be an incredibly successful mission in which uh, all of the internees were rescued.
0: That That is so incredible. And I also remember, I think, from the History Channel show that I watched, that there was a sizable Japanese force nearby that could have easily at any time sort of come in and uh, turn them away and could have been a whole different story.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, the Philippines is like a vertical island with Manila. Luzon, the main island, is uh, with the Manila kind of right in the middle. And so MacArthur had brought the U.S. troops from the north, and they were coming in and they had gotten Manila by that point, and there was a lot of fighting going on in Manila, and this was just south of Manila. And so, a lot of the Japanese troops were in this area, so they weren't far away. If things had been known, they could have brought them and captured some of these internees or some of the U.S. forces if they had known what was going on, because they were in a couple miles. Wow,
0: that's a, it's an incredible feat that they accomplished in that rescue, that is for sure. Yeah, I
1: mean, They talk about it being one of the most successful military operations in in U.S. history. What what my dad says is that it actually happened the same day that the U.S. forces um, captured Iwo Jima with the big flag, you know, the the flag that they- Yep, classic photo yeah uh, and so so that got the front page and La Bani- los baños los was like on page four um, <laughs> it, it just happened to be on a, on the wrong day to get the uh, press that it could have but you know when it's been reviewed over time it's been recognized that you know due to macarthur's insight and planning of the, the military people who actually put this together and because of God's graciousness. And and MacArthur mm-hmm. actually said that. Right? I think MacArthur's words were God with us today or something of Absolutely. that nature to recognize that in order for this to happen so smoothly and to rescue all these people without injury, it, we are very thankful for the goodness of God. Uh-huh. And so, you know, like when you said before, even me not being here, you know, we had the situation where his friends didn't give him up with the messages. From the radio, but then also that they were all rescued a couple hours before they were supposed to be um, executed. That somehow, in God's providence, He had allowed, you know, this this is back in the 1940s before there was a lot more. Communication tools for understanding what was going on, and the fact that with the information they had, they could plan this particular rescue just before they were to be executed.
0: That is incredible. Incredible. God showed up there, that's for sure.
1: Oh, sure. He did. Yeah.
0: What did they, what happened after the rescue? Like, what did your grandfather and and your dad do? What did the family do?
1: Yeah, so, you know, they took them out, and they actually were taken to this place called Abilibid. In fact, we're in a prison for uh, six weeks, where they just kind of tried to nurse them back to health. They had in other cases where they immediately let those internees loose and they gave them plenty of food that actually got sick um, and caused problems. So they were very careful in terms of what they gave them. Their, Their diet was somewhat restricted because they wanted to be able to allow their bodies to be able to handle that. So they had about six weeks there and they actually given good three meals a day, but rationed to some degree. Although my dad talks about how at the first meal, they had a bowl of sugar in the middle of the table, and he just took it and, and ate the whole thing, having having not had any sugar for a while. So, but he talked about how you know they kind of did it gradually, and then eventually they gave him the choice. They could have stayed in the Philippines, but they felt because of just their physical condition, as well as just being able to make contact again with family and friends, they would go back to the U.S. Um, because if they didn't do that, they didn't know how soon you know normal shipping would occur. And so they, on April 9th, they got on this troop ship, the SS Admiral Everly, and headed off towards, eventually, Long Beach, where they arrived on May 2nd in 1945. And my, my dad talks about how this was very significant. He even talks about coming when that boat was pulling into the U.S. harbor. He was looking and realized that God had saved him for some reason. Here he was, just 20 years old, but having experienced this significant event where his life had been preserved while others had lost her life. And he realized that um, he wanted to, to make a difference, that God had spared him, and spared him for a purpose and a reason. So he said at that point that he was going to commit his life to God, doing whatever God called him to do um, at that particular time.
0: Wow, that's incredible. And I think of, I mean, other people might have said, boy, that was a close call. I'm never doing this again. I'm going to stay back in the United <laughs> States. I'm done,
1: right? <laughs> <laughs> no, my dad talks about you know one of the first days after being rescued that they were sitting around and one of the people that got rescued there was because there was a quite a few missionaries so they were obviously just praying and thanking God and appreciating God's preservation and one of the other attorneys who didn't have any relationship with God turned to one of the soldiers and said listen I just, hey, look at these crazy missionaries they're talking about God saving you. hey it was you guys who came in there and saved them mm-hmm. and. And the uh, soldier turned to him and said, if God hadn't been there, we wouldn't be here today. And, you know, every time I uh, get a chance to recall this story, I haven't heard it from my dad a number of times and read it a number of times. I realize this is just an incredible indication of God's goodness uh, in preserving my dad's life uh, and allowing for the rest of our family to be here today.
0: Wow, that is such a nice story. And And that leads me to my last question for you. How did the experiences of your father and your grandparents and your father's siblings? How did their experience ultimately impact you and your life, Dave?
1: You know, it's hard not to be impacted by this. You know, when you get a chance to read through it. In fact, you know, just in preparation for this discussion with you, James, I had gone back and read some of this stuff again and realized, you know, I wish I'd known this even when I more when I was younger. You know, I've kind of just lived with this these stories, and you realize, hey, that's pretty. Um, nice of what's happened. But as you get older, you realize significant impact of what my dad and uncle and aunt, grandparents went through and God's goodness to them, as well as appreciation of how they had wanted their lives to make a difference. And you see, even in the difficulties and the challenges they faced, trusted God to preserve them. And thankfully he did. And so you see God's mercies and blessings, and you see that illustrated in my family's heritage, which I think continues to encourage me that, you know, I'm not here by accident. Uh, I have the uh, opportunity to be able to see how God has worked in the past and encourages me to continue to trust him to see how he wants to work in the future.
0: Dave, well, I'll tell you this, uh, I want to thank you so much for sharing this really amazing story with us. And, uh, you know, your family has really created an inspiring legacy for a lot of people. And I know there's been a number of books written on it. And uh, did you mention, I think, I don't know if you mentioned it, didn't your grandfather, Father write a book about this
1: yeah yeah he did in fact you know he he wrote uh, an autobiography uh, called great triumphant that kind of tells his story but obviously a big piece of that being what they experienced in uh, during the war in the philippines
0: you talked about your dad coming back and deciding that this is he wanted to be a missionary going forward uh, what about your grandfather how did this ultimately affect
1: him and your grandmother You know, I mean, so I mean, they they continued on the Philippines. They lived out their life there. In fact, when they were looking to, you know, they were thinking about retiring, whether they should come back to the U.S. or not. They said, "Listen, our home is in the Philippines. We had they'd gone out there when they were 23, and they said we wanted to live out our life here." And so, remember my dad, my grandfather is 80s, um, still preparing sermons. They had a, a big radio ministry. One of the things that they pioneered was to. Have programs on the radio in which they offered correspondence courses where people could learn about the Bible. So people could write in, and when they complete the course, they would get certificates and move on to the next one. And there have been millions of those courses. I remember back in 1972, I think they reached their million. So it's up to four or five million now of these courses that were started. And my grandfather was still writing material for these radio broadcasts to could be sent out. And here, side I toward, get toward later in my life, is an encouragement to, to me to see him continuing on despite his age, wanting to do what God had called him to do.
0: Now, Dave, did you live some of your life in the Philippines? I
1: did, yeah. So you know, so my parents went back out. My dad went to Bible school, married my mom, and then went back to the Philippines when I was four years old. And I was there till I graduated from high school. So I basically grew up in the Philippines and have tremendous memories and appreciation. And, get, you know, got a chance to see my grandparents and uncle and aunt, parents work in the Philippines and so it, it uh, continues to be an inspiration for me to be able to have had that exposure and experience and see what God did through them.
0: Well, wow, this is a, that's great. This is a terrific story, and I just re- I want to say I was moved by the courage it was shown by your family under extreme circumstances. We think sometimes we've got it tough, and then you think of the stress and the pressure that was there and potential danger, and yet maintain their faith, and they impacted other people, and their legacy continues to impact others for Christ through their children and grandchildren. And I really want to thank you again for joining us on the show. So I just want to say to everybody, until next time. Keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others, and have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well, and God bless.